Mark 2, verse 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's an honor and privilege every time I get the opportunity to stand up here and look at the Word of God with you, uh, with family, with friends, with people I've known for a long time, and with new faces too. Uh, My name is Matt Hardy. If we haven't met, I am one of the elders along with Mark and Jeremiah here at Cross Point Pinita. I hope you've been enjoying our time in Mark. We've been going slow, as you know. We're, we're many weeks in, and we're halfway through chapter two. So it's been, a, it's been a fun pace, I think, for especially preparing sermons, for having the time to dive in and, and really look at each account of what's happening. We get to see it over and over again, and we get to take the time to really notice what's going on, what Christ is doing in, in these accounts we could have some intentionality as we look in there. I think uh, Joel had a good analogy for what this beginning of Mark has been like. He said it's been kind of like a quick Netflix series. We get to see one account and then another account and then another account as we kind of stream through these episodes back to back. And uh, we're going to continue that today with, with the chapter or with the section that Karen just read. Uh, so join me in prayer as we begin to look at God's word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to look at your word that you've so graciously recorded for us, that you've given to us, that you've preserved for us. Lord, we pray for physical healing for many who are sick, Lord, around the country, around the world. Pray for those in this congregation. Pray for those who have been exposed to sickness, Lord, that you would continue to protect them. Lord, we pray for Uh, spiritual healing, especially, Lord, this morning, or that you would do what only you can do and take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Lord, that your word would work in spite of my deficiencies and failings, or that your spirit would move this morning, or that your promise would ring true, that your word is effective as a two-edged sword, Lord. Pray that you would show us what you'd have us learn this morning. Lord, I pray you'd help us to answer the questions. Lord, and I I do thank you again for this this gospel account that you've allowed us to work through, this this book of Mark, Lord, that you've preserved for us, that we get to see a little more each Sunday, a little bit more of who you are and what you're doing. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So I just need to do a quick quick review. We're going to look at some of these episodes real quick and start with uh, at the beginning of Mark 1. 
We see the first three chapters of Mark here kind of explain who Jesus is. They're telling us who Jesus is. We see John the Baptist proclaiming ahead of Jesus who he is, what he's doing, that he's, that he's been sent to prepare the way for Jesus, that it's this Jesus who is coming. He's not even fit to tie his sandals. Quickly, Mark takes us into the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father tells us who Jesus is, right? The voice comes down. The dove comes down. We see this Trinitarian God physically in front of us, and we see God the Father proclaiming, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? Then we quickly jump again, another episode of the baptism, or I'm sorry, the temptation of Jesus. We see Jesus in his humanity, right? We see that he is fully God and fully man, that he is hungry in the desert. And we see his connection to the Father, right? He's in a, a battle of wits with Satan himself. And rather than rely on his own strength, he quotes scripture. And Satan twists the scripture and Christ quotes scripture back. So we learn a little bit more about who he is. And then we, get, we see what he's doing, what he's come to do. We see Jesus begins his ministry, right? It's very quickly, he says, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is f- fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is his ministry. This is what he's come to do. Offer the gospel, offer the good news. We see him call his first disciples. He goes by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and he finds some brothers, Simon and Andrew. And he finds James and John, his brother. And he calls them and they come. We see him engage with an unclean spirit, which shows his power over the supernatural as well as the natural. Again, he heals many in the next section. We see him willing and able to heal. Right? The people are coming and he is healing. He's preaching in Galilee. He's moving again. He went out and he prays and he comes back and he preaches. And he said, it's time to go to the next town. We see him cleanse a leper, right? Breaking moral and Jewish law. He goes and does what, what he shouldn't have done, right? All the devout Jews and scribes and Pharisees would have said he shouldn't have done that. But he touches the leper. And he himself does not become unclean, but he remains clean and the leper becomes healed. Last week in Easter, we saw both the physical and spiritual take place simultaneously. When he heals the paralytic, right? He not only heals him, but he forgives him of sin. Once again, proclaiming who he is as the son of God. And then we come to our section today where he calls... Levi. So as we've been working through these, these accounts, these many accounts, we've been looking at some of the themes, some of the themes that we see over and over in these accounts. And one of them obviously is Jesus is moving, right? Jesus is not sitting still in a town and waiting for people to come to him on the Sabbath or people to come to him to hear. He didn't set up shop in a synagogue somewhere and let everybody visit. Jesus is on the move already. We've seen him. We see him town to town, and sometimes in the synagogue, and sometimes out in the country, and sometimes both in the same day. He's moving. We've seen Jesus is able to heal, right? 
is able to heal physically. He's able to hear, heal spiritually. We've seen Jesus is willing to heal. Not only is he able, he is willing. He is not rejecting the people who are coming to him and say, heal me, heal me. No, he is, the masses are coming and he is healing. And there's not a quiz or a test you have to take to get in the door to see Jesus to get healed. Right? He's, not, he's not even screening people. He's healing. And one of the key things we see throughout, and we'll see it again today, Jesus was not afraid of the unclean. Now, that may seem a little foreign to us, but this idea of cleanliness and uncleanliness was deeply rooted in the Torah, deeply rooted in Jewish tradition of contamination, right? Just being in the house of a leper, being in the vicinity of someone who was unclean can make you unclean yourself. But we see Jesus unafraid of that. We'll talk about that more today. So I invite you to, to lean in and listen and let's look, look at this section today for those same themes. We're going to start with verse 13. And we see he went out again beside the sea, right? Jesus is already moving. He's already going somewhere. And he seems to like the sea. Sometimes I think he was a fisherman and not a carpenter. Uh, And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So one thing we see is you see as this motion, as Jesus is moving all around, it seems somewhat random. And he's here, he's here, he's there. He went out and prayed. He came back. He went to this town. He went over here, but it's not. It's intentional. We'll see it today. I like the quote by um, Tolkien that says, not all who wonder are lost. Right? It may look like Christ was wandering around the countryside, haphazardly preaching, but he wasn't. He had a plan. He's finding his disciples, right? He's already found some. He finds another today. And he's teaching to many. And I would argue that even though the crowds may look haphazard, Jesus knows who he's teaching to. He knows everybody in that crowd and why he's teaching them. One of the neat things is that he was teaching outdoors a lot, right? He's teaching in the countryside. He's teaching by the sea. He must have had a good voice, right, to, to be able to reach out to the hundreds who would gather around him or, or thousands. And again, There's no one at the door saying, only Jews, no Gentiles. There's no one at the door saying, no criminals, please, right? He's teaching in the countryside by the sea. All are welcome. All are welcome to come and to listen. The devout and the curious, the new guests, or maybe the people who have been following him as he moves around. He was building a following. I'm reminded uh, recently, Tracy and I got a chance to visit Cross Point Cape, and if you've not had a chance to visit Cross Point Cape, I recommend taking an opportunity. We'll miss you for a Sunday, but go out and engage and see what they're doing out there. It's pretty, pretty amazing. They meet in a pavilion, and it's an, in a nice park. It's a pretty good-sized pavilion, and there's a walking path, and there's playgrounds, and it's on the waterfront, so it's, it's a beautiful place. And we were there, and um, Joel had preached, and we were getting ready to sing our songs at the end of this service. And as this is happening, I saw someone walk up, and they came and joined us, and they sang the songs at the end, and they sat there for the benediction, and they engaged, and then they left, and they didn't talk to anybody. I tried to 
zip over and catch them, but they were gone. They had already left. And I said to Joel, how cool is that? And he said, it happens almost every Sunday, right? In fact, he's so bought into the idea that he's thinking, maybe we don't need to plant a church inside in, in, in Cape Canaveral. Maybe we need to plant another pavilion, right? It's that same idea of someone heard the songs and someone saw the teaching. And so they came and they listened and they engaged. And they got to hear a little, little something. Even if they didn't listen to the message, they got to hear the gospel proclaimed through music. And I think Christ is providing the opportunity as he's going by the sea, as he's stepping out of the synagogues, as he's being among the people. And it's a beautiful thing. But we see he's in motion again in verse 14. And he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So, yeah, Jesus is moving. He comes by this comes by the sea and he sees a probably some kind of booth or a shanty or lean-to, something set up there for, for uh, Levi to collect taxes. Many of you probably know Levi as Matthew. God renamed him Matthew, which means gift of God, right? Levi had meant uh, attached or joined. God does this throughout Scripture. We see many people renamed as God doesn't do this for a witness protection program, uh, but maybe in the case of Levi, he did. <laughs> but uh, he does this because he's creating a new person, right? He's creating a new identity. And key to that is a name, right? So he's giving them a new name. He's giving Levi the name Gift of God. And we'll see a significant. And Christ says two words to Levi. He says, follow me, right? Not eloquent, not a great argument, didn't present uh, the reasons why he should follow him. I don't know if what Levi knew about Christ, if he had heard the rumors, if he had even been out and seen uh, what Christ had done. Obviously, there was word going around of what was happening. But Levi responds with even fewer words. He gets up and follows him. It was an effectual call, right? Follow me, and he does. He drops everything and walks away and rose and followed him. This would have been a costly decision, right? It would have been literally costly to Levi. Tax collectors made good money. I mean, a lot of money. They did well. We'll see. Uh, they paid a price for that. But he gave up a job that must have been important to him, right? The, the difficulty of being a tax collector is you're, you're pretty much kicked out of your own race of people. You're hated. And Levi did that job. So it meant something to him to have that job. It must have, or he wouldn't have put up with it. And he gives no argument. His response is to follow. It's costly to Jesus, right? It's costly to Jesus to ask a tax collector to follow him. The devout Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, immediately thought less of Jesus, his ministry, his following, his disciples, because he asked a tax, a tax collector to be part of his group. And we'll see more here. Verse 15, and he reclined at table in his house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So we see these labels. We see sinners and tax collectors, right, separate. For the Pharisees, the group of sinners included a very diverse group of people, right? They would have your, your criminals, people who broke the law, obviously, are sinners. And then they would have even your common men who are sinners who hadn't broken the law. One of the pillar commentaries I was reading said, people who were too busy, too poor, or too ignorant to live up to the rules of the religious authorities. So if they weren't following all the rules that the Pharisees were following, they too were lumped in this group of sinners. And then you had tax collectors who were even worse than sinners, right? They, they needed to have their own special category. And I know going into this study that nobody likes tax collectors, right? It's not a secret. Even today, I don't know how many fans of the IRS are in this room, but they really didn't like tax collectors in this time period. In a book called The Mishnah, which was an oral tradition of Jewish law passed down in, in, into a written form, uh, forbi- made it forbidden for Jews to even accept any kind of offering or alms from a tax collector as it was considered stolen money. They were viewed so morally reprehensible that the Jews could lie to them with impunity. It was okay to lie to a tax collector because they're not really people, you know? <laughs> If a tax collector touched your house, your whole house became unclean, right? It had to become richly cleaned, cleansed again. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. They were not allowed to attend, right? The, the, it's hard to come up with the equivalent, uh, but the closest thing would be like the French who were helping the Nazis when they were occupied, right? They were viewed as Uh, people of your own race who have turned and helped the oppressor. They were helping the Roman government. Many people would consider Christ's interaction with Levi worse than Christ's interaction with the leper, which was frowned upon, because the leper didn't have a choice about his condition, but the tax collector chose to side with the Romans and to go against his own people. So, yeah, they didn't like tax collectors, to say the least. They, they made a practice of robbing their own people. They had a system of taxes that allowed uh, an individual to bid on a neighborhood or a section of area. And the Romans would set a price and they would say, this is the price for this neighborhood. And they would uh, tell the person who bought it, as long as you collect this money and give us this money at the end of the year... Anything else that you collect, you can keep. So this encouraged quite a bit of corruption uh, where they were were taxing. uh, And most of the positions like Levi would be in were were taxing uh, goods that were passing by. So he may have been taxing fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee. So he would make sure that he got his yearly quota and then as much more as he can. And they got a lot because they had, uh, most of them had uh, a lot of excess money. So again, another reason that they are frowned upon. And so Jesus wasn't ignorant of this. He was a man who grew up in this culture. He knew what tax collectors did. He knew what people thought of tax collectors. I'm sure there were probably a lot of tax collector jokes like there are are today, right? He knew what he was doing 
And he knew what Levi was, and he knew who Levi was when he went and asked him. And so what does Jesus do with this information, right? Because he knew Levi's heart better than Levi knew Levi's heart. So what does he do with this information? Well, he, he goes into his house, which, I'm, which, you know, like I said, if they touch your house, your whole house is unclean. So he goes into Levi's house. He reclines at his table, and he breaks bread and eats with him. Right? That's what Jesus does with this information. Each one of these things is a deepening of the connection with these outcasts. So in his house, Jesus would be considered unclean, of course, as anybody who was in there. Reclining at his table is significant in that it's the position of a feast or a party. Right? He's not just casually eating. He's, he's relaxing, having a good time with these people. And eating is significant. Uh, the Jews believed that when you ate with somebody, in some sense, you became the same person because you shared the same substance, right? So he was really, really tying himself together with Levi. And he was eating with Gentiles, again, strictly forbidden. So we see in verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So right, it seems like a question that they would ask, right? Why, why is he doing that? For all the reasons we just talked about, right? Who, who, they knew who tax collectors were. They saw him engaging with these people. So there's also another reason. Let's, I'm going to look at where the Pharisees find their righteousness. And we have some insight to that in, the, in that same book, the Mishnah. I think there's a quote we have on the screen here. It says, he that occupies himself in the study of the law, this is talking about them, is deserving of the whole world. Deserving of the whole world. He is called friend, beloved of God, lover of God, lover of mankind. And it clothes him with humility and reverence and fits him to become righteous, saintly, upright, and faithful. And it keeps him far from sin and brings him near to virtue. And from him, men enjoy counsel and sound knowledge, understanding and might. Right? So these, this is what they're operating under. This is the pretense that they're living their lives, being far from sin. Right? What do they see? They see, they see this teacher, this rabbi, engaging in the same house as these sinners, engaging in the same house as these tax collectors. So again, with one of the commentaries I read, it says, the Pharisees would not have had a problem with what was happening if Jesus was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors on the condition that they changed their lives, right? That is not what happened. Jesus didn't say, hey, Matthew and friends, Levi and friends, I will come eat with you if. He didn't say, I will come recline at your table if, if you reform your life, if you repent, if you forgive, you know, if you pay everyone back that you stole from. It's not what happens. He came and ate with them. So we go on to 17 quickly, and he says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So I love this in the gospel. It's one of my favorite things when Jesus answers a question that nobody asked him. Right? They asked the disciples, why is he doing this? And we don't know why they, they asked the disciples, but 
Chances are they were trying to stir up a little bit of trouble between the disciples and Jesus. But Jesus answered, just like he did previously, when he heard it in their heart. <laughs> and then he answered them a question that they didn't ask. So he, he answers this. And I like to think that Jesus was in the middle of his teaching and stopped and answered it. <laughs> just, just to really make sure they, they heard him. And this is his answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So what is he saying here? In part, he's acknowledging he knows the people he's with are sick, right? He's here for the sick is what he just said. So he knows that he's with the people who are sick and he's okay with it. And he's challenging anybody who would call themselves not sick, right? He's here for the sick. So if you're not sick, he's not here for you. Right? I wonder if the Pharisees got that, or the scribes, the Pharisees got that. So he makes it clearer, as he often does. He'll make another statement, and he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? This is good news for us, church. This is good news for Levi and his friends that day, and it still rings true as good news today. Right? What is he requiring? Who did he come for? He came for sinners. He didn't come for the people who were self-righteous. He didn't come for the people who were working up their own salvation. He's challenging those who would say that they're not sick. He didn't require the sinners to take a class right before he came to them. He didn't require the sinners to get their life together and then he would come. No, he said he came specifically for the sick. He came specifically for the sinners, the sinners like us. And again, I imagine the Pharisees were confused, right? The Pharisees and the scribes often get lumped into this category of bad guys, right? It's easy to see them in the gospel as kind of these bad men, self-righteous bigots who chased after Jesus. These were men who devoted their life to the study of scripture, to the study of the law, and they worked really hard at trying to keep the law. They worked really hard at doing what they thought was right, right? They worked so hard at it. Their head was so far in the book of keeping the law that they missed the Christ who was in front of them. That was their sin. They did not recognize that Jesus was above the law, that he was above the Torah, the teaching, that he would fulfill it in every way. And what he was showing them, they were missing because they were so stuck in everything that they had known and everything that they had learned and everything that they had been taught. Their head was full and their heart was full and they didn't have room to see what this Christ was doing. Turn with me. Let's look in Romans 9.30 real quick. It says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, 
But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is what Paul and Christ are showing them. They pursued a righteousness by works. They pursued a righteousness on their own abilities. And they stumbled when they saw Christ. They stumbled when they heard of a, a righteousness produced by faith alone. Right? It did not make sense to them. And they couldn't see it. That quote from the Mishnah, he that occupies himself in the study of the law is deserving of the whole world. Right? That's what they were operating under. That's the pretense that they were under. so easy for self-righteousness to creep up, especially when you have a system of rules, when you have a system of laws. So often, uh, I think our hearts turn towards self-righteousness because there might be a system, there might be a set of rules that I could follow where I wouldn't just have, have faith. Our hearts turn towards, if I could do A, B, and C, if I could read my Bible and go to church every Sunday and lead a small group and, and do this thing and get all my check marks on, on you version, right? Then it would be okay. What Christ is showing us, what Paul was telling us was we cry out for things that would crush us, right? If we want the law, the law would crush us. We cannot keep the law. And yet we constantly turn towards it. Christ is proclaiming a new righteousness, one not based on works. Again, there's a parable in Luke 18. We're going to read a few verses from Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is upside down kingdom for, for the Pharisees and for the scribes. This makes no sense. They've worked so hard for so many generations, generations upon generations upon generations. And now to be told that it's by faith and not by works, So what do we take away? What do we take away from the story? What do we take away from this account today? What are, what are the points? One question to ask when we read this is, where do you see yourself in this story, right? What part are you playing? The tax collector, the Pharisee, Jesus perhaps? There's lessons from each. If we think of ourselves as the tax collector, we see a lesson in redemption and depravity, a grace and celebration. This one's easy for me to see myself in is, right? The sinner. I would argue with Paul that I, not he, am the chief of sinners. I know my own heart, as we each do, right? I could relate to Levi and the fact that when Christ said, follow me, I wanted to throw a party, 
right? If we could have Christ come and eat with us and recline at table, what a beautiful thing. Maybe we see ourselves as the Pharisee, right? We've been faithful. We've studied. We know the right theology, right? We get it. Other people don't. We're confident in our knowledge. We serve God, right? We do the right thing. This may sound a little far-fetched, right? But we all have days like that. We all have moments of self-righteousness, right? We all wander down that path. Like I said, we cry out for rules or we cry out for law, not knowing that they would crush us. We work up self-righteousness in our, in our family. I mean, in our kids, in our, the way we, our jobs or what we know or the books we've read or there's a, there's a million different ways to work up our own self-righteousness. There's no shortage of ways. Perhaps you see yourself as Christ in this, the role he played, right? It's always easy to put ourselves in the role of the hero when we read a Bible story. I like uh, Matt Chandler's quote, you are not David when you read the story of David and Goliath, right? We are not the hero, but sometimes we think we are, right? We can say, I can play the role of Christ because I can go be among sinners, right? Is this a lesson that we should be less self-righteous and that we should go hang out with sinners more, right? That Christians spend too much time around Christians and we should go be among, among sinners. That's a good lesson, right? But is that what this has to tell us? I think what I would argue for today is that it's none of those, right? What we need to see in this story is not our place in it, but Christ's. What did Christ do in this story, right? The scripture is about him and what he's done and what he's doing. It shows us that he was intentional, right? It shows us that he was inviting, that he was filled with grace, right? That he's not afraid to confront self-righteousness, and that he is not afraid to come into places that might be seen unclean. That Christ is not afraid to invite us into his mission, into his family, that he knows us, that we're worse than tax collectors, and that he invites us into his mission, into his family. That not only that, he invites us to recline with him at table and share a meal with him, right? That's one thing I look forward to in heaven is hanging out and eating with the saints and with, with Christ and with our fellow brothers and sisters. We get to share a meal together. And that's one of the reasons at Crosspoint we like to eat together so much. That's why it's part of community group and why it's part of a lot of the things we do because it's a beautiful thing to share a meal together. And so Christ invites us to that. He invites the lowest of the low. He invites the outcast and the rejected to eat a meal and have a party right? See, the Pharisees were hung up on the law, unable to see that Christ was doing something different. They were unable to see the distinction that Christ himself clean could walk into an unclean place and remain clean. We saw it with the leper in that account where he touched the leper. And everything according to what the law says said that Christ was now unclean. But what happened was that the leper became clean, right? Christ takes the uncleanliness and turns it into cleanliness, right? We first saw this in Isaiah, in the account of Isaiah, where Isaiah is in heaven and he sees the holiness of God and he says, whoa, whoa, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. 
And the angel takes a coal from the altar that was clean. And he touches it to Isaiah's lips and he says, your lips are now made clean. See, this is something only God can do. Only God can take the unclean and make it clean by touching it. And we know Jesus isn't afraid to do this. He came into this unclean world, this broken world. He came into a manger, right? He left heaven and came in here for us. And then for our sake became sin. He was made, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? He took on our filthiness. He took on our uncleanliness, right? He gave us cleanliness by his touch, by his death on the cross. It's good news, church. It's good news. He requests our sin, right? That's what we have to offer. That's all we have to offer Christ is our sin. And he takes that sin. And what does he give us in exchange for that sin? He gives us righteousness. Talk about scandalous grace. Talk about deal of the century, right? I give you my sin and you give me your perfect life. You give me your righteousness. You give me grace, right? This is Christ unafraid. We may feel like, but he doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know my past. He doesn't know the sin I've been a part of, but he's not afraid of it. He can make you clean, right? And he's done it. He's done it. He's purchased everything that is required to make you clean. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have taken our sin. Lord, that you weren't afraid to step into this broken, dirty world and engage with unclean sinners. Lord, that you know us. You know our hearts better than we know ourselves. You know the extent of our sin, and yet you've invited us to table. You've invited us to break bread. You provided your son as a means of reconciliation. You've given the ultimate sacrifice of the perfect one and given us his perfection. Lord, thank you is not enough. And be with us as we continue in worship.